Turn to Genesis chapter 31, if you will. And this is part three, and you'll understand why this is a part three message. Um, it's part three because the saga of Jacob's journey has been a deep one, has it not? I just knocked something off. I hope that wasn't important. <laughs> uh, the saga of Jacob's journey has been challenging. In fact, the focus of our attention as we've walked through the text is it's been really difficult to not get bogged down into the details of the story that God has laid out before us in the life of Jacob, Leah, Laban, Rachel, Bilhah, Zilpah, and the 11 kids that we have seen. It's been difficult not to get bogged down into the details of the wages being changed 10 times, as Jacob will tell us in this narrative, and the, and the challenges of, of Jacob's journey. And as I reminded you at the very beginning of our mini-series on the life of Jacob, uh, the story is not meant for us to sort of moralistically impose 21st century truth on it, and say, well, this person was morally right, this person was immoral, this situation was moral, this one was immoral. Our, our goal here is to observe God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, in the midst of a faithless, immoral, perverse world. And what we have found in the life of Jacob is Jacob and his sloppy, messy life and the decisions that were made in his family and by his father and mother and by his grandfather and grandmother before him, those decisions had profound ripple effects on his life. As we've seen in the preparation and the lead up to the story of Jacob, uh, the fact that Abram and Sarai uh, struggled so much with trusting God and obeying God and, and worked really hard to uh, get God's blessing their way, that ripple effect had its work in the life of Isaac and Rebekah. And that, work, uh, that worked itself out with favoritism in the family. And yes, there was a promise of God to Rebekah at the birth of Jacob and Esau that Jacob would be the one to receive the blessing. But what we find uh, is despite Jacob's best efforts, he leaves his family in distress and fleeing for his life. He leaves the land of promise and he goes back to Mesopotamia. This is almost a reverse effect from Abraham's call. Out of the land of Ur of Chaldees. Out of Mesopotamia. Into the land of promise. No, Jacob, uh, and not only does Jacob mirror Abraham, and we'll see that in a bit. Um, Abraham left with family and received an inheritance and a blessing. Jacob leaves with nothing but the clothes on his back. Abraham uh, sent his servant to Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac, and he provided camel loads of goods and wealth for Rebekah. And yet, Jacob returns with nothing. And so what we find is a faithful father in the midst of failure and difficulty and circumstantial distress. Now, last time we talked about being the fruitful followers, those that trusted God and turned from God. And yes, the grace of God is evident in the story and God's sanctification, that is his changing us to be more and more like Jesus throughout our entire lives. God's sanctification process is richly evident in Jacob, Jacob's life and his wives' lives. And so that's why we saw last week and last time we were together, in fact, we, we noted that God's Grace was evident in the life of the ladies in Jacob's life. 
So before we get into the text, let me remind you of the theme of this section, that God's faithful grace disciplines and directs our sanctification. So the overarching theme of the story, the big picture, is God is disciplining and directing our sanctification, our change to be more and more like him. Jacob is a son of promise. He is the seed after Abraham, after Isaac. He is the inheritor, and God is going to bless Jacob uh, because Jacob is part of God's redemptive plan. That does not mean that Jacob's choices are all redeemed or redeemable. And so what we find is Jacob still has free will in the process. Jacob's decision-making leaves a messy wake behind him. But God will often use the circumstances of our lives to direct and discipline and to sanctify us. And if we, if we dig into the story and try to talk about who was morally better than the other, we're all going to fail. We're going to, like the apostle, we're going to be like the Corinthian believers who went to Paul and started comparing themselves. And Paul says, comparing yourselves among yourselves, you're not wise. And what is the opposite of wisdom? Folly. Yeah. We're fools when we compare ourselves. Comparative righteousness is an illusion. When you and I think that we are comparatively more righteous than another human being, we are deceived. James put it this way in James chapter 1, verses 14 and following. Um, Do not be deceived. He says, don't be deceived, my brothers. Why? He says, because God doesn't tempt any man. Neither can he be tempted. But each one of us is tempted when we're drawn away of our own desires. And when desire uh, has conceived, it births sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Now, our problem is not God. In fact, James would go on to say, don't be deceived, brothers. Remember that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the changeless one, with whom there is no turning or variation. You see, friends, God is good all of the time. And all of the time, God is good. And your circumstances being bad or difficult do not negate the goodness of God. And your difficult circumstances, the trials in my life and your life, do not mean that God is tempting you. Because God cannot tempt anyone, and he will not tempt anyone. It means that we have desperately wicked and deceitful hearts that drive us to desire something more than God has offered. And that is the story of Jacob. Jacob says, God, I want the promise. And God says, I'm going to give you the promise. I told your mom I was going to give you the promise. But Jacob and mom figure out a way to sort of make sure that God's God's working this out. And we find it it doesn't work out super well. Of course, the emphasis of the text, as we already mentioned before, I don't want to repeat it, but Esau, is is, uh, his character is revealed right away as a profane man. The book of Hebrews tells us that he becomes bitter. He is a blamer of God. He is the one that says, God, this is your fault. And he goes to his grave in bitterness and misery. Jacob, on the other hand, has a pattern of growth and grace. And so as we look at the text, we're going to find that God's faithful grace disciplines and directs our sanctification. The question is, are you going to be moldable clay in the hand of the potter? That's the true question. Will I let the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sanctifying one, will I let him shape my life, or will I continue to throw in my words, my way, my will, my desires? You see, the way of the sinner 
is hard. That's what Solomon wrote. David said it too. So as we look at the narrative today, we're going to ask the same question we've asked before with a slightly nuanced uh, turn of events. How does the narrative highlight our need to display our trust in God's way with principled patience, despite unseemly circumstances through our active obedience? As we ask this question, how does the narrative highlight our need to display our trust through our active obedience? How does the narrative show our need to display trust through active obedience? I'm going to hit that in a bit. And as you know, with narrative, um, as much as I like to be a propositional declarative preacher, with narrative, oftentimes an inductive method helps us see the answers better. So we are going to kind of, I'm going to give you bones and skeletons and outlines to follow. Don't worry, you won't miss the outline. But as we walk through the text, we are going to sort of inductively ask questions about it so that when we get to the end of each section, we will have some principled applications. So hang with me in this process. So let me just introduce where we've been and let's march ahead. When we started our journey with Jacob, we saw that although the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and revel in God's grace. The consequences of sin are great. And by that I meant sin that's sinned against us oftentimes. We live in a sin-cursed world. You, you may be sitting here in this room and think, you know, why do bad things happen to, quote, good people? The classic age-old question. Well, the, the truth of the matter is bad things happen to everybody because we live in a sin-cursed world. And, you know, like I said, relative righteousness is an illusion. And so is goodness. You know, we are not morally good. We are morally bad. Our hearts are desperate, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Okay, so the, the, the question needs to be framed, why do bad things happen to bad people? Because bad people do bad things. Because sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And sin comes from the desires that conceive in our hearts, that get played out on the surface. We have deceitful hearts. And we, we walk around as self-deceived. And this goes for God's people of every dispensation, whether Old Testament era or New Testament era. So as we study Jacob's story further, we notice that God was behind the scenes actively changing Jacob, sanctifying him despite unseemly circumstances. And so in chapters 29, 1 through uh, chapter 30, sorry, it shouldn't say 3, we noted that God's sanctification requires to, uh, us to reckon with our own nature. That's what we've been talking about. We need to reckon with who we really are. We need to be honest with ourselves. No, I am, not, I am not God's child because I deserve to be, right? I am a child of wrath, as, the, as Paul told the Ephesian church. I am a, a son of disobedience. I deserve eternal separation from God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. I am a child of wrath and of disobedience, but God entered because he loved us so much he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we read in our text, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God would send his one and only Son to be human flesh, to live a sinless life, so that as many as received him, John 1.12, to them he gave the authority or the right or the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. 
So it's not enough to just be a part of the group and say, hey, I'm, I'm part of God's church, you know, I attend, I do my thing. No, we've got to showcase the reality of who we are by our active obedience. And that's what we find in Jacob's life. His faith turns, his trust turns to active obedience. And we find Jacob's transition uh, from, from leaving hearth and home with nothing in his pocket and nothing to show for the, the fact that he is the inheritor of blessing. To coming back full uh, 20 years later with a troop and the genesis of God's blessing and his people. 11 kids and a great blessing. And so last time we were together, we highlighted this truth this way. Following God's way despite unseemly circumstances requires principled patience. We have to have the principled patience that God creates through our sanctification process. And so we noted that God's sanctifying work was not just in Jacob's life, but also in the lives of his wives and concubines. It's an atrocious story. It's a horrible story. In fact, we find nothing but sorrow in this story. Jacob meets Rachel at the well. Uh, it, sort of, it sort of pictures the way um, Abraham's servant meets Rebekah at the well. I mean, it's, it's just this beautiful narrative. No doubt, no doubt Jacob's heard this entire, his entire life, and so he immediately falls head over heels uh, in love for uh, Rachel. In fact, he promises Laban, Rachel's dad, I'll work for you for seven years. And what happens on his wedding day? He wakes up the next day with Leah. Now, how do you think that makes Rebecca, or excuse me, Rachel feel? How do you think it makes Leah feel? How do you think it makes Jacob feel? This is a messy, horrible story, okay? This is not, everybody in this situation is a victim, and almost everybody in this situation is a victimizer at some point. And we, we don't find this story full of moral truths, unless we're looking for the God of morality that's in the story. Because every human is sitting here with comparative righteousness, and all of them are unrighteous. And that's, that's the point. We live in a dispensation of comparative morality. Well, I, you know, I, I go to church every week, so I'm, I'm better than my next-door neighbor. They're such pagans. They go party on the weekends. Really? Comparative righteousness is an illusion. My righteousness comes from someone else. It comes from Jesus Christ, not myself. Amen. And so unless, until I get a handle on God's sanctifying grace in my life and recognize that God is sovereign over my circumstances and learn to trust God despite my circumstances and then demonstrate that trust in active obedience to God, I'm going to walk in comparative righteousness my whole life and miss the point. In fact, worse yet, I might be just like the people of God in the Old Testament that are described in the book of Hebrews who thought they were a people of God. They were a part of the covenant promise. They were in the ethnic group. They were going along with the blessing. They're receiving manna from heaven. Their clothes don't wear out. Their shoes have lasted for 40 years. They got God's presence in the tabernacle. They're getting guided a day and night by a cloud of, of uh, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. You know, God speaks through their prophet. They've got Levites and sacrifices and means and methods of taking care of their sin. So they're all good. But a whole generation dies in the wilderness because they refuse to believe God. 
There are people in this church, hopefully not in this church, I'm going to say in the church broadly because I think uh, I know my sheep pretty well. But there are people in the church broadly that think they are part of God's family, but they're deceiving themselves. They think that their comparative righteousness is good enough to get them into God's heaven. And they claim to be a part of God's faithful, but they choose not to obey the faithful one. You see, your and my claim to trust God is only revealed when we're willing to obey God. Now, I'm going to springboard off of that in a a little bit. That's going to be a really crucial sort of linchpin in our theology. And by the way, I've I've been told last week, apparently, I said something that was was a, a colloquialism that doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It was super embarrassing. I was terrified and embarrassed and mortified. Um, linchpin doesn't mean wicked. It's a little pin that holds a trailer onto a car. Um, it, it means other things too, but that's the idea, okay? That little teeny pin, if it's not applied appropriately and you hit a bump, the trailer could pop off and cause a horrible wreck, okay? So the linchpin, the little pin that holds it all together is our trust in God must be displayed in our active obedience. And when we get through this story, I'm gonna, we're going to see it compared and contrasted, okay? All right, so today we'll see the third and final episode of what I would say Jacob's journey away from God's place of promise and blessing and his return to the land over which he is the rightful heir and inheritor. Through the process of the story, we will see God's overarching grace and sovereign care for Jacob and his wives. In a lot of ways, Jacob's story is a spiritual picture. Now, again, I'm I'm not an allegorical preacher, so I hope you you all know that now. But but it it is a beautiful picture. Jacob turned his back on hearth and home, and he went his way um, at his speed and his direction. And God blessed him despite his decision-making. And in the process of his way and his, his direction, there's a lot of collateral damage he, was, he himself was manipulated and deceived and hurt. His wives were manipulated, deceived, and hurt. His wives became victims. He became a victim. They became vic- victimizers of each other. It's nasty and messy and sloppy. But when he hears God's voice and God says, Jacob, go back. We're going to find in the text, he turns away from and to God's place of blessing. That is a biblical picture of repentance, a turn from our sin, our self, our way, and a turn to God. And can I tell you this, friends? Please hear me well. As we walk through the text and we come to very principled applications toward the end of things here, please remember this. If you and I claim to be followers of Jesus, to have placed our trust in him alone, to have repented from our sin, turned from sin and to the Savior, then we will be going in a path of obedience, not in a path of of mouth consent. Oh yeah, I believe that. I agree with that. Okay, well, we'll put your money where your mouth is. Make your feet move that direction, right? Repentance is a turn of direction that comes from a turn of thinking that comes that produces a turn of attitude and action in the heart. It's heart transformation that God rots in us, and then we participate in obedience. All right? And I don't claim to know and understand the mystery of it all, but we're going to see it in this process. Okay? So the text 
highlights today are kernelized application, and here it is. If you truly trust God or His sanctifying grace, if you and I truly trust God's sanctifying grace, then you and I must obey our faithful Father. Obedience is not easy, is it? And, and, and we will see that illustrated in this process. So as we look then in the text, let's take a look at the first truth that God's sanctification requires, and that, that is this. Number one, God's sanctif- sanctification requires trust that is displayed in obedience. We're going to see that in this text. All right, so let's go ahead and read the text together. Again, as I say often, the most important thing I'm going to say today is what the text says. So I will read the whole story, and if you hear nothing else, listen to God's Spirit through His Word, because this is the inspired truth of what God has said to us. Genesis chapter 31. Now Jacob heard the words, well, actually, let's back up. Look at verse 43 of 30. 30. Thus the man, this is Jacob, The man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So Jacob has prospered despite 20 years of oppression, of victimization, of bad decision-making, because God is a gracious and merciful God. Now let's read. Keep reading. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as, he, as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock and said to them, I see your father's countenance. It's not favorable toward me as before. But you know, the God of my father has been with me, and you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not allow him to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Let me just pause before I keep reading. Notice how many times in this section... Jacob mentions God, okay? Little hint, it's the number of perfection. Keep going. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any, still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. I'm going to explain a little bit about that. We need some cultural context to understand what they're driving toward because we don't live 2,000, well, 4,000 years ago, 3,800 years ago. 
So we'll explain what this is. And Laban, uh, excuse me, verse 17. Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padanaram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now uh, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. All right, we're going to pause the story there, and I'm going to work through this section with you, okay? We're going to see, um, we're going to see trust displayed in obedience in this section. Now, this third and final episode, as I, as I mentioned, um, is going to showcase some character changes. Through the process of the story, we are going to see God's overarching grace and sovereign care for Jacob and his wives. We'll also see the story of escape. We just read that interrupted by Rachel's theft of her father's goods, which will have negative consequences for Rachel and for God's people later on. But it is also seen as a parallel to a larger story, which will I, I will note in our concluding thoughts. And if, if I forget to say it, let me just at least say it now. Um, later in chapter 35... We find God's people, God's children, um, they end up burying their household idols. It's probably these household idols. And they, it takes them years because Rachel led her kids in the wrong direction, stealing these household idols. It, led, it, it, it left their family with false idolatry for years. They buried the household idols. And by the way, this is a direct parallel. I'll show you at the end again. This is a direct parallel of God's looting and plundering Egypt. Jacob's escape from Laban is a, is a mirror of Israel's escape from Egypt. And uh, we'll see that later. It's meant to be that way in the narrative because who is reading this story? The Israelites that are, is, have escaped from Egypt, okay? So this story was written during their lifetimes for them to hear and apply, for them to understand their history, Okay? All right, I, I will make more about that later. So, um, ultimately, God has wrought his redemptive and sanctifying work in Jacob's heart during his 20 years of exile. He left hearth and home with nothing but the clothes on his back, as I mentioned, and now he returns an extremely wealthy man with wives who bore him 11 children's flocks, herds, servants, camels, etc. The narrative ends in chapter 30, highlighting this truth, and opens in 31 with the not-so-subtle reminder of who provided such wealth by his grace. Whereas last time we discussed Jacob and his wives, the baby wars, remember? We noted that God's sanctifying, uh, sanctification requires us to trust our faithful father. Today we will note, if you and I trust God's sanctifying grace, then you and I must obey our faithful father. Trust always shows itself in obedience. All right, so trust displayed in obedience. Here in the text we find there's obedient leadership. Look at verses 1 to 16. Now, Jacob chooses to listen to God and obey God. And as I mentioned in this text, God is mentioned seven times. Obviously, God is the author of this. He, uh, he wrote this story. Jacob is the one speaking, but I don't think it's on accident that Jacob refers and alludes to God over and over and over again at number seven, which is the number of perfection. And the item here, the clue here, is Jacob is saying, look, we are seeing that Jacob's character has been transformed. He is a man who now, instead of getting uh, participating in, um, sort of getting his way involved in, he is just 
he has learned to trust God. And he has learned to lead in that way. So he gathers his wives. He's, uh, he, 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 is, he gathers his wives together for discussion. God has sanctified Jacob to the point where he trusts God and he's willing to obey him even uh, when it's terrifying. So what we find out is obedience is always played out in action. We're going to see that in here in just a second. Uh, but a couple things I want to point out in the text here. Let me go back so I can see it. Um, so uh, in this culture, Jacob, if he had taken his wives without their consent, there would have been a, there would have been a legal uh, maneuver Laban could have made to then take his daughters back from Jacob. So there were, there were legal laws in place in Mesopotamia this time frame where uh, if Jacob had not had a leadership conversation with them, then they could have legally been removed from his household and all goods that he had acquired during his time working for labor, Laban could have been confiscated. So Jacob is obeying God in leadership. He sits down with his wives to have a conversation and says, look, God has spoken to me. We need to leave. How do you feel about that? Now, let me make some applications here. God does not speak audibly to us anymore. Um, our, our dream life, as interesting as, as, as it can be, um, is not the primary means of God speaking. Right now, in this dispensation, doesn't mean he doesn't use dreams to uh, awaken us to spiritual realities or stir in us a desire to seek him further. That, that happens. Uh, but he speaks to us. God, in these last days, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, has spoken to us through his Son, End of story. So the final revelation of God comes through the word of God, and the word of God is a reflection of the Son of God, the sovereign Savior of the universe. But Jacob here uh, has, has, knows the promise of God. God speaks to him and reiterates the promised blessing, and he goes and sits down and leads his family in the right direction. Obedient leadership. Listen, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we are not to forsake the fellowship or the assembling of ourselves together as such is the manner of some, Hebrews 10, 24. But we are to gather together on a regular basis to poke or to provoke one another to love and good works, to provoke one another to a faith that shows love and obedience. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love one to another and if you keep my commandments. The community of faith is meant to operate that way, in a community. Yes, we are individuals individual saved by grace. Yes, we are made up of little households where there is a, a husband and wife that are partners together in the grace of, of life to rear their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to submit to the Lord and his leadership. But we are a community connected together. We are meant to grow together. We are meant to provoke each other, to obey Jesus and to love one another. And we're commanded to do so. And so our active obedience, and here I am preaching to the choir because you're here today. You chose to be here today when you could have done a number of other activities. So obviously, say yay you and pat yourself on the back because you're where you should be. But the point I'm making is this. When we are tempted to disconnect from the community of faith, to disassociate from God's people, to think that we can survive as an island unto ourselves, we are turning from God's community of faith and to our own way. We're going from the land of promise and blessing to the way of the sinner, which is hard. 
We're going from Canaan to Mesopotamia. We're going from Isaac to Laban. Do you, do you follow? Do you track? This is the point of the story, one of the points of the story. Jacob obediently leads his family. Husbands, love your wives enough to lead them biblically. Christ loved the church so much that he self-sacrificially gave himself for her to purify her with the washing of the water and the word. He wants to make her more holy, more righteous. Listen, guys, I know what it's like to have a long day of work. 10, 12, 14, 16 hours maybe. I know what it's like to want to come home and put your feet up and just vegetate. But if you haven't had time in the Word that day or with your spouse that day or with your kids that, that day, then you need to spend time obediently leading them. They need you. They need to see that you are walking with God, that God is transforming you from the inside out. They need to know it. They need to experience it with you. After all, God gave you your wife to be your joint heir together for the grace of life. And, and by the way, those of you who are single today, God has even more in charge for you because he wants to be that same connector that you have with a, had with a partner at one point in, in life. He wants to be the number one in your life. And so, obedient leadership. Uh, we also see obedience in action, verses 17 to 21. Um, he, he has this discussion with his wives, and they say, look, I, I told you I was going to explain it. So um, notice, notice with me, um, it happened, uh, let's see, i got to turn the page again. Uh, so Rachel and Leah answers, you know, they've been bickering and fighting this whole time. But they have some solidarity here. They both answer their husband when he obediently leads them to have an open dialogue and discussion, they come in unity to the same conclusion. Now, I told you, you know, 3,800 years of history here in the past, we may not understand the cultural context. When they say, um, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? You're like, what? You guys are like uber wealthy. <laughs> you got flocks and herds and camels and sheep. I mean, didn't Jacob just say, every time uh, Laban changed my wages, all the flocks and herds started birthing those, that kind, spotted, speckled, gray, I mean, striped, streaked, didn't matter, purebred, whatever, just, you know, they kept popping them out, and I kept inheriting them, right? Uh, so we're like, wow, what, what is this? Well, the point is this. Jacob made a covenant with Laban to work for his wife for seven years. In that environment, and then for the other one for seven more years, so for 20 years, and then for the flocks and herds for another six years. So for 20 years, he had labored for this purpose. Now, in that culture, historically speaking, that covenant, the person who made the covenant, the dad or the covenant maker, was supposed to take the security of those wages and set them aside in case the marriage didn't work out so that the wife could be provided for if her husband left her or failed her. And then, if her husband was faithful to her, when they departed ways, he was supposed to take that security and give it to her. Are you tracking with me? So not only is, does, does Jacob get everything that God has already blessed him with, but all the seven years' worth of work for Rebekah and the seven years' worth of work for uh, Leah and the six years' worth of work for what he's gotten, all of that should have been rightly given to each daughter because that's what they deserved. That was the agreement. And Laban spent it all 
and squandered it all because his sons come to him and say, Jacob's stolen everything from us, which means that dad hasn't kept anything. So they're not wrong when they say, they're not being greedy. They're saying, this is what we were owed in our society. That, by the way, might inform a little bit of Rachel's motivation, albeit wrong, to do what she did. Um, Notice what she says. Uh, Are we not considered strangers? For he has sold us and completely consumed our money. He did sell them, didn't he? He sold them. Jacob works for, for uh, Rachel for seven years, wakes up uh, on wedding, wedding morning, and it's Leah. Makes a pact to have Rachel instead. So there's instant horrible hurt, right? You know, he should have just stayed with Leah. We find that Leah becomes the blessed one. We find that Leah has six of the 12 kids. Um, her concubine has two more. So eight of the 12 sons of Israel come from Leah and her concubine, or her handmaiden, as it were. And God could have given all 12 of them through Leah. God is not, doesn't need the mess that Jacob has made. Okay? But obedience is displayed in action. And so what we find here, um, he says, for all the, she says, for all the riches which God has taken from our father are really ours. And our children's now, now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. So you can see the context. This is why they say what they say. So obedience then happens in verses 17 to 20. They rise up. They set out. Um, we can't say we... Um, so just a way of principle, obedience is always played out in action. We can't say we trust God if we don't obey him. Um, here, Jacob gathers the family, has a discussion, leads his family into action. A couple of comments here on the text. Um, when Jacob, let's see, did I write it in my, yes. So there's a word play here in verses 19 and 20 that indicate a deep mutuality of Jacob and Rachel and their actions. I think the purity of their actions gets played out in the narrative later, and I'll explain that. Um, what, is, what is our... What, so let me, let me back up and help you frame and understand what I'm saying. Our actions that are revealed, that everybody can see, come from motivation, right? And our motivation can sometimes be impure, correct? And sometimes our impure motives don't look impure on the outside from the outside looking in. But eventually motives and their purity get showcased by the habit and pattern of life. Are you following me? This is why Jesus says, for all Christians who are saved, there will be a judgment where our works will be brought before the Lord, and we will have done works. They will either be wood, hay, and stubble, or they will be gold, silver, and precious stones. I mean, all of them are works. Wood, hay, and stubble is something. But when they're thrown into the fire of God's uh, purifying fire and judgment, when their motives are tested, wood, hay, and stubble disappears. It goes up in smoke, literally. And so what we find here in the text is Jacob and Rachel are meant to be pitted with each other and compared to each other. The text does. So there's a word play. The word tricked uh, in verse 20, or, or you'd say uh, stole, Rachel had stolen the household idols. That word stolen is actually the word that can be translated tricked. Uh, it could also be translated stole the heart, uh, stole the idol. It's an idiom. It means deceived or tricked. So the Hebrew text reads, and Rachel stole her father's household goods, and Jacob stole, literally stole the heart of Laban, the Aramean. 
So both Jacob and Rachel certainly have reasons to be angry and to escape Laban's heavy-handedness. Both decide that the situation requires sensitivity, um, discretion, and stealth. Jacob simply leaves at a time where life for the shepherding family will be at its busyness, and they can get away without conflict. Rachel decides to stick it to Laban in the process, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, okay? It's really what happens. So um, first point here, as we made, Trust is displayed in obedience. Obedient leadership is a method of displaying trust. Husband and wives, wife and husband, singular, <laughs> husband and wife, we are to display obedience in our leadership with one another and our leadership in our, with our kids, okay? Um, obedient action, that obedient leadership should always lead to action, now, I'm going to make some principled parallels here, some principled applications, and I'm going to throw them all on the screen at the same time, um, so I don't want you to get distracted, so I'm going to say a few things first, so you're not reading them, okay? So you're listening and not just reading. First of all, what did I say that what metanoeo, changing of the mind, change of direction, repentance really means? It means a turning from this direction to this direction, or vice versa, okay? Whichever way is bad, <laughs> whichever way I did it before. Turn from this direction or this way. Either way, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It's a response to the Son of God, the Savior of the universe that says, I can't go my way, I must go your way. That's obedient action. So, some principles. We can't say we truly trust God if we aren't willing to obey God no matter how hard or what the cost. We can't say we truly trust God if we aren't willing to obey God, no matter, what, no matter how hard or what the cost. Obedience to God requires our active leadership in the home. Your family is watching. Your active obedience will reap a dividend if you trust God. By the way, your active disobedience will reap a dividend as well. Okay? So a couple of quick thoughts here. And, and I know, just, just know that any time I preach, I know I'm going to be held doubly accountable. So I have to wrestle with these principles. I can't say from the pulpit something I'm not willing to do or change myself. You understand that, right? Um, when I, if I ever point a finger, I got three more pointed back at me. So there's no finger pointing here. I am one of you. I'm part of the sheep. As an under-shepherd, I'm part of the sheepfold. But I'm going to tell you this. There is no room... In Bible Christianity, for us to say we love God and others, but we're not willing to obey Him when it comes to reconciling relationships. Amen. That's a hard statement, isn't it? But it's true. This is why when we gather together in the first Sunday of every month to fellowship together in the gospel to be unified together in the common bond of Jesus Christ. We have to be absolutely sure that we have attempted by the grace of God, as God is our witness, to be reconciled to one another. Listen, friend, if you have animosity or bitterness or angst against someone, or if you have ought against someone, or someone has ought against you, reconcile with them. Now, we're going to talk about that as we get closer to the end because the application is clear. Jacob is on a path of reconciliation, all right? So I want to jump to the second point, and I'm going to drive this point home. This is the last point today. Trust is displayed in reconciliation. That's what we see in chapter 31, 22 to 55. 
Now, I, I know I, I just can sense by the stirring in the audience, maybe it's a little warm in here. I mean, I'm warm. I got lights on me. I'm wearing a jacket. Probably shouldn't be wearing the jacket, but it is what it is. Maybe you stirred because you needed that, but maybe there was a stirring in the audience because the Holy Spirit hit a nerve. I know the Holy Spirit hit a nerve in my heart this week as I was working through this. Human reconciliation is an outflow of divine reconciliation. If I have been reconciled to God, God wants me to reconcile with others. We're going to talk about the difference between forgiveness and trust on the human level. But Jacob is in the process of being reconciled. He has been reconciled to God. How many times did he say God or declare God's name or talk about his sovereignty in the beginning of this chapter? Seven. Jacob has been reconciled to God. He has decided, I'm not going to Mesopotamia anymore, God. I got to go back to the land of promise. I got to go back to the, the God of my fathers. I need to focus my life on God. And he leads his family in obedience that direction. He has been reconciled to God. But guess what? He needs to be reconciled to his family. There's going to be some reconciliation with his wives. There's going to be some reconciliation with his brother. That's the next chapter, and we're going to get into the deep of that next, yeah, next week, if I'm here. <laughs> I should be. But. So as we look at this, there's three sub-points here. Reconciliation comes through honesty. So you say, how do I reconcile with, with someone, pastor? How do I manage or resolve conflict? Be honest with them. Be honest. Honesty sometimes means dredging up the reality of the hurt that they have caused. Remember, people are not our problem. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. But it is possible for you, Christian, to be manipulated and used by the spiritual powers of this world that are wicked to hurt and wound another believer, and shame on you. Shame on you. Peter was used in that way, was he not? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's not Satan, but Peter was saying satanic things to, about Jesus and to him. Anything that, that tears down, any conversational point that tears down a brother or sister in Christ is not God-honoring, Period. End of sentence. Jesus said, everybody will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, that you may grow up one another in all things Christ-likeness. So if your speech is not to edify and grow somebody up to be more like Christ, then it's not loving. Now, sometimes love means confrontation, does it not? And I've told you the little silly story of my pudgy hand, beautiful little daughter at 18 months old that was attracted to the pilot light in our gas stove. And we had to constantly tell her, no, do not touch the pilot light. You will burn yourself. And then she went from the pilot light to the little three-pronged holes that were everywhere along the wall. Those were just, for some reason, so attractive to her. You know, three little holes. It's just like little like a smiley face on every wall and just her little fingers just wanted to go to stick her fingers in every single socket and outlet. And we had to constantly tell her, no, don't do that. Why? Because we knew that that would be harmful. So sometimes love is negative. Don't do this. It's harmful. 
but it's always for the purpose of protection. Don't tear down someone in your life because you don't like what they're doing or you're being self-centered. Build them up. Reconciliation comes through honesty. So let's look at the text. I'll read it quickly if you promise to listen quickly. All right? Verse 22, And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. I forgot to say this. The sheep shearing was a big deal. Um, the reason why it's a third day is because this, you're talking about thousands of sheep that would bring in hundreds of workers. This, this happens in modern, modern Israel today and all over the world, Ethiopia and, and Africa, nations that produce a lot of wool and sheep. Um, this happens all the time. A sheep shearing event is a big community event. Hundreds of shearers will come in and they will, they will literally shear sheep for hours, uh, for all day long, for days on end, Okay. So it took three days. Jacob chose to leave when the shearing event was about to start. He's going to shear his sheep later. He's getting out of Dodge. Okay? And so uh, this, is, this is part of the sort of, um, he stole his face. He stole uh, away. In other words, he stole away from Laban. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night. Notice how God describes Laban now. There's going to be a clear dichotomy between these two. Okay? Uh, and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched, his, pitched in the mountains of Gilead. Again, I don't have time to go through the details here, but all the verbs here are military terms. Every verb you see in this section is all about, we're going to war. He pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. The camps are set up. Okay? He, uh, he pursued him. He overtook him. These are military terms in the Hebrew. Okay? There is one intention on Laban's mind. He is going to take back what's his and destroy what he can't take. God warns him, but he's still got that attitude. And Laban says to Jacob, what have you done? That you stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and heart. You did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters, and now you have done foolishly in doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good or bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Here, this reconciliation between Laban and Jacob requires honesty. Laban is never honest with himself. He is full of bluster. He actually has no case here. None at all. But he's blusteringly making this case. Jacob is the one who is honest and sincere. Why did I, why did I leave? Because I was afraid. You know what? There may be people that avoid you at work or people in your family that won't pick up the phone or return your text messages or have unfriended you on Facebook because you need to reconcile with them. Because you have been unkind. You have been hurtful. You have, you have crossed a line with them personally. And like Laban, you have no case. 
but, but reconciliation needs to happen. Or maybe you're like Jacob, and you've been the one who's wronged, and you've been the one who's been hurt, but you haven't been honest with them to sit down and say, look, I love you, but I can't live like this anymore. I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're going to continue to hurt me. I'm afraid that I'm going to continue to be a victim. I'm continually going to be taken advantage of. Jacob is honest. Jacob is, is open and forthright. Now listen, let me just throw this out there on, on, a, on a legal jurisprudence pattern. If there's someone in your family that has abused you, call the police. You say, Pastor, how could you say that from the pulpit? Because Romans tells us that we are to obey every ordinance of man. And there is no room for verbal or physical abuse in any home, Christian or otherwise. Amen. There just isn't. And that is, there is a reason why God has ordained the authorities over us. There are legal protections for you. Okay? I'm not saying, you know, do this unjustly or without cause. Okay? There, have been, there are plenty of situations that I'm well aware of, even in our own, own church family over the years, where that has been abused, where the person who, who did that basically claiming to be a victim so that they could get back vindictively at their parent. That's what Rachel does, does. So I'm not saying that. I'm saying if there is abuse, deal with it the right way. Okay? Now let me, let me go on. Reconciliation requires honesty. While at first glance we see Jacob's plan doesn't appear quite honest, but God in his sovereign sanctification backs Jacob into a corner circumstantially where he needs to come clean about the hurt and pain he's experienced over his 20 years. Uh, the text then highlights both Rachel and Jacob's agreement in the, in the direction they're going to take to escape, but they too, the two of them diverge on their paths, which we're going to highlight here. I told you about the wordplay. So, Rachel or Jacob simply leaves at a time of life where there's a lot of busyness going on, but Rachel decides to stick it to Laban in the process. And both of these decisions are described similarly, but the text reveals the character of each individual in the story. So that leads me to the second point. Reconciliation reveals character. When you choose to do the right thing in the right way, you can't change that other person. Remember our, our main proofs? No, I don't want to go there. I want to be there. Thank you. Uh, remember our main truths? That we are four anchoring truths of biblical change? The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. The Word of God is the tool of change. The agent of change, the Spirit of God, takes the tool of change, the Word of God, and He changes me from the inside out in my heart. My heart is my thinking that determines my emotions, that reflects in my actions. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and He changes me. But the very first principle, I am a person in desperate need of change. I must go to God who alone can change me. Jacob realized he needed to change. He needed to be reconciled to God. He chose to be reconciled to God. He led his uh, family in obedience and he activated that change. And re reconciliation really reveals character. He was willing to have the hard conversation with Laban. He was willing to change. But he recognized Laban may not change. I can't change Laban. Hear me, really, hear me well here, okay? I want to be as clear as I possibly can. As a shepherd, I love providing counsel and help. 
And by the grace of God, God has given me a, a wonderful partner that has keen discernment and biblical insight. She is full of scripture. Whenever you talk to, to my wife, scripture just comes out of her. And so I partner with her and we counsel together oftentimes. Um, but I can tell you in 99% of counseling instances outside of the church and inside the church, and this is even, even in my own heart when I seek counsel, I often find myself falling into this, this sort of trap. It's always coming to someone to say, hey, pastor, if so-and-so would change, I've got a problem. I need you to help me fix it. And so-and-so needs to change, right? If my husband would do this or that or that, if my employer would just honor me here or there. If I you know, could get a higher paying job, if my circumstances were such that blah, 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 right? So the first step is I must reconcile, reckon, reckon, blah, blah, recognize I am a person in desperate need of change. I need to be reconciled to God. I am a person in desperate need of change. When you come to my wife and I for counsel, we are going to help you by the power of the Holy Spirit with the aid of the Word of God to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And by the grace of God, as you partner with the Holy Spirit and you change in your heart, then you can be a conduit of change in others' heart and lives. But you can't change them. You cannot. It is impossible, spiritually impossible to change someone else. So he's honest with Laban. And what we find is two different... Now the story diverges. You have Jacob and you have Rachel. Jacob is willing to do the hard thing and confront Laban and say, yeah, I was afraid. For 20 years, you have manipulated and twisted and changed my wages, and I just assumed you were going to steal my kids and my wives. Rachel lies, and she, she, does, she does what would be uh, the reason. You look at the story, you're like, you know, why didn't, why didn't Laban, why wasn't Laban like, hey, Rachel, stand up? My household idols are small enough to fit in that camel's, camel's saddle, that you're sitting on. And in his mind, he's thinking, the most atrocious thing you could ever do to my deity is sit on the deity when you have your menstrual cycle. I'm just being honest with what the text is saying. It is a defamation of the deity. Now, are those idols truly God? No, they're just, they're worthless little things that represent false worship. But Rachel is literally sticking it to her dad here. There's no reconciliation here. And I'm going to tell you, I think the consequences of Rachel's action, her deceit, and her sin play out in the rest of her life. She gets taken early. She doesn't make it to the promised land in the same way that her sister does. She doesn't get buried next to her husband. Leah becomes the preferred wife. Leah is the one who bears the kids like Levi and, and um, Judah, right? The, the Levite, the priestly land, and the kingly clan, right? So I, I, I'm not saying Rachel's not saved. I don't know. God knows that. But what I'm saying is the consequences of her sin led to hard, a hard life, and she dies in childbirth. And again, only God can sort that out. Again, remember when I said the very beginning of the caveat, if we jump in and we start making moral implications and comparative righteousness, then we're foolish. Because comparative righteousness is an illusion. But we can show that character is revealed when reconciliation is in process. And Rachel's character is clearly revealed. She's not ready to reconcile with her dad. I don't know if she ever really does. I don't know. Only God knows. 
But Jacob does. And Jacob is leading his family in the right direction. Reconciliation reveals character. Which one are you? Are you Jacob? Are you Rachel? Are you still in that process of I'm, I've been hurt, I'm bitter, and I'm angry, and somebody's got to get back at them, and it might as well be me? Or are you the person that says, you know what? God says revenge belongs to him. I'm going to let him repay. There's two choices. Which one are you going to be? Which one are you going to take? Reconciliation reveals character. And remember, if you and I truly trust God's sanctifying grace, then we must obey our faithful Father. We must reconcile. We must show our love through obedience. Finally, reconciliation sets boundaries. This is important. Again, the rest of the story, verse 44 and following. Um, did I end with verse 30? I didn't, actually. I didn't get that far. Well, let me, let me because of time. Let me just say, read the rest of the chapter yourself. What you're going to find here is very clear, uh, very clear dichotomy, very clear split. Okay? Um, <coughs> what we find here is Laban and Jacob. Laban is the one who says, let's set up a boundary. They end up naming these piles of stones, these covenant rocks, the same thing in different languages. And what you find is clear distinction between their two choices. Laban is clearly saying, no, I still identify with my, my world, my worldview, my gods, my idols, my heart, my way, my ethnicity. And Jacob is saying, no, I choose to identify with my God. And you know what? Sometimes reconciliation doesn't happen the way we want. Sometimes the person we attempt to reconcile with says, you know what? I'm sticking it to you. No, I don't give you my blessing. No, I don't care that I hurt your feelings. What are you going to do then? You need to set up boundaries. The Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that we are, as a result of the Holy Spirit life, putting off the old man, being renewed in the spirit of mind, putting on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Okay? The process of sanctification that starts with mind renewal, thinking God's thoughts after him, and changes our, our th thinking, that changes our attitudes, that changes our actions, that process can totally change us from being angry, malicious, manipulative, vindictive, and vengeful to, verse 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. That is a gospel transformation, my friends, because that is unnatural. What is, the, what is Ryan's way? What is my evil, deceitful, sinful heart's desire? I want them to get their comeuppance. That wasn't fair. That wasn't right. Didn't you see that, God? Where were you when all this was happening? 20 years Jacob is suffering. Where's God? Well, he's there, isn't he? He's paying attention. Friends, God has your back, to use a modern euphemism. Amen. Reconciliation often means setting boundaries. And if, if you have, in God's way, been honest, you have forgiven, that does not mean you let that person tread on you again. 
There were clear boundaries. If Laban ever crossed that boundary, the reason why they set up those pillars, if he were to ever cross that boundary for the purpose of a malicious intent with war in his heart like he did this first time, then God would repay. There was vengeance to be had. They, they could legitimately be at war. Does that make sense? Now, being kind and forgiving, our forgiveness of others is based on God's forgiveness of us. Did you deserve or earn God's forgiveness? Do I deserve God's forgiveness? No. Paul told Titus this, this same truth, but it is by his mercy he saved us. It's us not getting what we do deserve. We're not getting what we deserve. That's why he saved us. So my willingness to forgive someone, no matter how atrocious and heinous their sin against me is, my willingness to forgive them has everything to do with God's willingness to forgive me, not whether they earned it or deserve it. Amen. 99, actually 100% of the time, 100% of the time, I'm confident, I'm willing to stand corrected here, but I'm confident in this, this statement, this dogmatism. 100% of the time, when I'm a victim, it's not my fault. 100%. If you have been victimized, it's not your fault. It's not because of who you are or what you did. It's because of the sin in that heart of the person who victimized you. So many children that grow up in sexual abuse and verbal abuse as adults struggle, thinking, struggle with their self-worth. They struggle with their value, thinking, well, it must have been something wrong with me that dad beat me. Or my uncle sexually molested me. It, it must have been something with me. I must be a bad person. No. No, it's not your fault. And God cares. And God knows. And God will judge. Now, forgiveness does not mean letting them back in. It means I'm willing to forgive them because God has forgiven me. And that might mean the end of that relationship. If you care for them, you can still pray for them. You can pray for God's work. But remember, you can't change them. Only the Holy Spirit can. And maybe God won't use you as the tool to lead them to him. Maybe God will use somebody else. But maybe he will use you. Set up boundaries. All right, some last principles. Dif difficult circumstances often reveal our heart belief. What you believe will be revealed in how you live. Reconciliation to God and with others displays God's grace in a sin-cursed world. Be a reconciler. Reconciliation often requires boundaries. Forgiveness is necessary, but trust is earned. Okay? So let me, let me just kind of summarize that and conclude. What you believe will be revealed in how you live. We cannot say as Christians we love God and not obey his word. We cannot. Okay, I, I'm going to say some, some hard things that the New Testament says that are biblical and honest. The, the Bible says that marriage is honorable in all. Hebrews 13, 4. And the bed is undefiled. But whoremongers or, or fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so that doesn't mean that we can't find forgiveness and grace and restoration for God, but we have got to turn from our sin and to God. We can't have it both ways, Amen. right? We either fall on, on the feet of our Savior for mercy and grace, or we go our own way, right? Now, 
Jesus has pretty much thrown all of us under the bus. Because <laughs> he says, if you've, if you've violated the principle of covetousness in your heart, you're all adulterers. And he means that in a spiritual sense, right? I'm not even saying like the physical act of adultery, right? I'm saying if you covet, if anything is more important to you than God, you have a heart idol and you adulterated yourself against God. That thing has replaced God. You are an adulterer. Guess what? All of us are adulterers according to that principle because we have all had heart idols at some point that replace God. So when I say whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. I'm putting myself in that camp as well. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. I'm not calling anybody out here, but I am saying if we are going to obey God, then we need to fully obey him. We can't say with our mouths, I agree with God. I agree with his gospel. I agree with Jesus. Uh, I, you know, I agree with these truths, but we decide to live our own way. That's not true salvation. That's not true deliverance. It's not true Christianity. We're deceiving ourselves, like James says. We're unstable in all our ways. We're double-minded. We're two-souled. Reconciliation to God with others displays God's grace in a sin-cursed world. It's hard to leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile with someone. It's hard. And it's, it might be unpleasant. It probably will be. But you never know what God is going to do in your life as a result of your willingness to reconcile and be a reconciler. And reconciliation often requires boundaries. Don't let the, the, the victim, the victimizer, continue to victimize you. That's not what I'm saying. Please understand me. Too often pulpits like, you know, our, our conservative evangelical pulpits have said as Christians we need to be, we need to be the carpet. No. Now you forgive because Christ says so, because God has forgiven you. But you set those boundaries of protection. And let God be the great judge that he will be. Because one day, heaven and earth will flee. And all will stand before God, before a great white throne. And he will open the books. And he will judge. In conclusion, if you and I truly trust God's sanctifying grace, then we must obey our faithful Father. What is God wanting you to obey in? Do you need to obey in your leadership in the home, man, husband, wife? Do you need to obey in, in uh, not just word, but actively choosing to do so? M maybe it is in reconciliation. Maybe your character, you're realizing that the character, that the pattern that has been revealed to you in your own life as you're looking back retrospectively with hindsight, which is 2020, right? You realize, you know, the pattern that I've put in my life has showed trust in me, but I need to put trust in God. Maybe you are the Rachel, and you realize today, you know what, I've been bitter, I've been angry, I blamed God. I've said, he's the one who tempted me, and I realize, you know what, God is good all the time. He's always good, and I'm the one that's wrong. This anger and lust and bitterness has come from my heart, and I need God's transformation in my heart. Maybe you're the Rachel that needs to repent. Maybe you need to be honest as Jacob and confront your Laban, whoever that is. May God help us to truly fall on his sanctifying grace and obey our faithful Father.